0: Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips or for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. My kids ask me on a pretty regular basis when we are going to be able to travel again. I think a lot of us are in that same boat. We feel stuck at home. But what if instead of being stuck at home during the pandemic, you were stuck away from home? That's exactly what happened to some people during COVID-19. Airline and country entry restrictions meant that returning home wasn't always that easy. In addition to the career and family issues that being away from home raises, there are tax issues to consider, too. To talk about some of those issues, I've asked Diane Noble to the show. Diane is a partner in the Miami office of Saul, Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair, where she helps international investors and owners with business interests in the U.S. navigate pre-immigration tax issues and tackle estate planning. She also advises on clients with investments in U.S. real estate and enterprises with cross-border business. Diane has previous experience in global wealth structuring and wealth management consulting for private banks, particularly for clients in Latin America, Asia, and Europe, and in fund administration for a financial services company for clients in Latin America and Miami. Diane is also fluent in Portuguese and speaks conversational Spanish. Thank you so much, Diane, for coming on to the
1: show today. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's talk about this issue of folks being stuck. So again, I think a lot of people think of, you know, the fact that we're all stuck at home, but what is happening
1: or how does it happen that people might be stuck away from home? Yeah, it's an important and timely topic. It's what I call the accidental tax tourist or accidental tax resident uh, because we're seeing a lot of people that didn't realize that if they stay in the United States for a certain amount of days, At least in the eyes of the IRS, they become uh, U.S. taxpayers. It being a global pandemic, there were flights that were disrupted, uh, transportation disruptions, shelter-in-place orders, quarantines, border closures. Anyone who wanted to leave, many people couldn't leave the United States. And even those that could didn't want to. They, They just didn't feel comfortable traveling. So they ended up staying here far more days than they wanted to. And what did the IRS say about that? Because I I know that early on, the IRS had a response. Yep, very early on, last year, in early 2020, the IRS came out with something called the Revenue Procedure 2020-20. That provided that an eligible, and I put that in quotations, eligible individual who wanted to leave the United States during the COVID-19 time period of last year, which they defined as as, uh, between February 1st and April 1st, Those people that were unable to do so, they were allowed 60 consecutive days, 60 consecutive calendar days of presence in the U.S. that they could exempt. But that was all that they provided us. And we waited for the rest of the year. And and now we're approaching tax time, which is right around the corner, and filing deadlines. And those were the only 60 days that the IRS exempted. And they also put some uh, requirements on how you could claim those exemptions. So talk to us a little bit about
0: what you mean by exempted, because some people may not know about the substantial presence test and what that means. So what does it mean to be exempted or to have exempt days?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. How long is too long? IRS defines a person as a U.S. tax resident if they have spent 183 days, a non-resident alien, 183 days here in the United States over a three-year period. It's a formula that gets calculated as They count 31 days in the current year, a third of the days in the prior year, and one sixth of the days in the year prior to that. If we take all of those days and add them up and they they equal 183 days or more, that person is considered having met the substantial presence test and they are considered a U.S. tax resident. It's a presumption that they are. It is a rebuttable presumption, which brings us to certain filing requirements that goes to your question about what is an exempt day. So the more you have exempt days, then
0: they don't count in that 183 day calculation.
1: That's right. There are certain visas that say, even if you're physically present in the United States, we're not going to count those days. There's student visas, there's teacher and trainee visas. Some athletes are allowed to be in the U.S. That, and not count towards that 183 days and what's called the medical exemption. If you get sick while you're physically here and you can't leave and it wasn't because of a pre-existing condition, you can exempt those days. And that's what the IRS used for their 60-day exemption for as part of the COVID-19 emergency period. They said, we're going to extend this medical exemption saying, if you're here during certain time periods, we're going to say as if you got sick while you were here. And we don't count those days. And you'd think
0: when the IRS issued that information, I guess it was pretty early on. And the IRS maybe assumed that the pandemic wasn't going to go on as long as it did. But the week that we're actually taping this program, we actually hit the one-year mark for the global pandemic, according to the World Health Organization. One would assume that there would have been more information or updates, but that never happened.
1: So what does that mean for taxpayers? So for taxpayers, now that We're in 2021 and they have to report their physical presence in 2020, they are required, if a non-U.S. person was here and met that substantial presence test, they have to file a Form 1040-NR, which means non-resident, 1040 non-resident, to pay any tax on U.S. income, U.S. source income. So while they were here, they generated income, they have to file that 1040-NR and they attach to that 1040-NR. A form called 8843, which is a statement for exempt individuals and individuals with a medical condition. And they would claim those days as being not present. Now, if they didn't have any income, they don't have to file the 1040 NR and they don't have to file that 8843, but they have to maintain records and keep with them everything that would be available to prove to the IRS that they, in fact, are claiming that exemption period. And be able to prepare an 8843 and present it. That's as long as they weren't treated as having been engaged in a U.S. trader business while they're here. If they were considered um, engaged in a U.S. trader business while they're here, they still have to file the 1040 NR, even if they didn't have any income. And then they would attach that 8843 to it. And this seems
0: complicated. It makes me wonder how many people know this. Like, obviously, if you're coming over here, And maybe you're corporate sponsored, you know, you're here for work purposes, you may have someone with you uh, or associated with you that knows what it is you need to file or can guide you in the direction of finding someone who can help you figure this out. But if I'm here on a tourist visa or a student visa and I end up overstaying because uh, or overstaying that 183 days, not necessarily overstaying the visa, but going beyond the, the days that would qualify. I don't know that I would know to go look for this extra form. I mean, how do folks figure this out? Is it something that folks fall into this trap of maybe not filing? Or is there, I guess there's a presumption that you know what you, you should know what you need to do to file.
1: There's a presumption that you should know that you need to file. That actually plays into the penalties for failure to file. There's a distinction between willful failure to file and non-willful failure to file certain forms. We're seeing that the vast majority of people, it never even occurred to them that they have a filing requirement or that their activity while they're here could rise to the level of a U.S. trader business or that their company would have a filing requirement. Some companies would have a filing requirement to exempt withholding taxes. It normally would not occur. So tax podcasts like this one are extremely important. And Bloomberg has been very active in that space as well in promoting some of these ideas that people need to be aware of. You mentioned that there are penalties for not filing. So if you
0: don't follow the rules, maybe again, we're going to assume that this is a non-willful thing. So you you don't follow the rules because you didn't know. What are some of the things that can happen to you?
1: I think one of the most egregious penalties for failure to be aware of your obligations and one of the easiest to comply with is something called F-bar reporting. FBAR reporting is foreign bank account reporting, and it requires any U.S. taxpayer. So that would be someone like what I call the accidental tax resident, a permanent resident, a corporation, um, a partnership, an LLC, trust, or an estate, anyone that would be considered a U.S. person. They have to file a foreign bank account report. And it's interesting because the FBAR filing is not a requirement of the IRS. It's actually, um, I might be digressing a little, but it's actually required by Title 31, which is the, the Code of Federal Regulations, and it's part of the Bank Secrecy Act. FBAR reporting is a jurisdiction, actually, of FinCEN, or the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network of the Department of Treasury. IRS is delegated the obligation to enforce this filing, and the filing is basically if you have a financial interest, which is very loosely defined, in a bank account outside of the United States that at any point during the year hit $10,000, which could even be just a a foreign exchange fluctuation, and it it reached $10,000 during the year, you have to file a form and disclose that
0: account. Right. And what happens if you don't do that?
1: Ah, If you don't file the form, the penalties for failure to report can be either civil, criminal, or both. Non-willful violations, which is truly, like you were pointing out, a very innocent, I genuinely had no idea, I'm not a sophisticated you know, tax person, I, I didn't know. The penalties for failure to file could, stu- could still be $10,000 adjusted for inflation or 50% of the amount in the account, the greater of those two. So that's non-willful filing. Mm-hmm. Willful filing, the penalties are the greater of a hundred thousand dollars or fifty percent of the amount in the account. Just to point out, willful is a very loose standard. It's the, the standard is pretty much you knew or really you really should have known. It was really obvious and, and you really should have figured out that you had a reporting obligation. If it's willful and criminal, the penalties could be as high as two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, five years in jail both, if you fail to file and you're in the commission of another criminal act, it could be $500,000, five years, plus additional penalties. And I know that the IRS
0: has taken kind of a bit of a bolder stance on FBARs lately because there has been a lot of compliance targeting by the IRS and also outreach campaigns to sort of get the word out about what's supposed to be happening. So this idea that you should have known is a, is a bit different than it used to be, kind of in terms of the way they, they tend to define it. Do you think that that should be reconsidered under these circumstances now where we do have, as you pointed out, like people who might accidentally fall into some of these categories? Because I understand where the IRS might come from. If I'm a U.S. person, I've been here for 20 years and the IRS has been getting out the word, getting out the word, getting out the word. and I've just turned a blind eye, I feel like that should be different from a person who may have landed here, as you pointed out, accidentally and can't leave and now is a U.S. person for tax reasons.
1: Yeah. The willful standard, there's case law that has defined it as what's called objectively reckless. It's so obvious that you you knew you were stuck in the United States. You knew you should have at least looked into what could possibly, what could that possibly mean? So it's a pretty low standard. The interesting thing is the IRS has a lot of discretion with regard to those penalties. They're given a lot of latitude. They can assess one penalty for all of your bank accounts if they really find you to be you know genuinely not aware of the requirements mm-hmm. and it's innocent. or they can assess that penalty on each and every account. So it could be fifty percent of every single account. They have a lot of discretion in between there. So yes. I do think that they're going to look very closely at who's really innocent and who just chose not to make a quick phone call to an accountant to say, do I have any requirements? What, what do you think? I'm, I've been here for now nine months and, uh, you know, may, maybe there's something I should be doing. And uh, we have a lot of taxpayers that listen to the
0: program, but we also have a lot of tax practitioners that listen to the program and, you know, certain Intake forms always ask questions about international and offshore assets. But this is not a normal year. People aren't necessarily coming into an office. If you could offer advice to tax practitioners who have folks in their office about the kinds of questions that they need to be asking or the kinds of information they need to be
1: eliciting from their clients, what would you tell them? I would direct them towards something that the IRS published some time ago called the IRS FR Reference Guide. They published it to give a lot of guidance on the requirements for F bars. Mm-hmm. As you read through it, it's pretty user-friendly and it will start to raise a practitioner's idea of, oh boy, maybe I should be asking about this or that. And it's interesting because even at the end of that FBAR reference guide, the IRS published like a little quiz. So it'll give you different examples of scenarios with answers to those scenarios. And I think practitioners, just even flipping through that, Some of the things in that in that FBAR reference guide could raise some interesting awarenesses, such as the person was here for, you know, they met the substantial presence test and they have a bank account, let's say in Guam or in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico is considered a foreign territory and they would still have reporting obligations. And I don't think that a lot of practitioners would have even thought that maybe an account, let's say in the U.S. Virgin Islands, is considered a foreign bank account. And it is. Wow,
0: no, I would I would assume that's very much the case that folks may not know that. So one of the things that again, we've kind of mentioned when we're talking about this willfulness, if someone is sitting in your office and they're new to all of this, so they they haven't been here long, but they've met these tests and they know they need to file contemporaneously, that may be less of a problem than the person who thought they were gonna be going back and maybe now they've been here three years, four years, because last year was the year that they were going to leave and then they didn't. And now they have maybe multiple filing requirements that are for years past. I know that, you know, one of the things that we would caution our clients is you have to be careful about the way that you approach that because that's maybe a little bit different what would you tell again practitioners if there's someone sitting in their office that they've realized that they have not filed for a couple of years it's not
1: just a 2020 issue well, i'm actually working on a on a case now where a person went back to brazil they're a us green card holder and they went back to brazil to take care of elderly parents they you know they don't have a w2 wage earner kind of job mm-hmm. they receive a lot of uh, freelance income and they've been in brazil now for 10 years taking care of their parents and now they want to come back to the United States. What do we do in that case? There's a multiple, like your question, there's a multiple year requirement. Sometimes, looking at the facts and circumstances very closely, sometimes the best thing to do is an offshore voluntary disclosure program, I mm-hmm. know you're you're pretty familiar with. Sometimes it's better to just file, if the income is low enough, just file their past returns, file them late, catch up. Right it is definitely a facts and circumstances. We look at uh, which is going to be the best for them, but they have options.
0: And if a person is here and kind of going back to something that you said before, they're listening to the program now and they're like, you know what? I was here 190 days or or whatever, like you're over the, the number, but this isn't fair because I really don't have any ties to the US. I'm just stuck. Is there any way that they can say to the IRS, you know what, I I am not responsible for reporting the way that you think that I should be reporting because I am not a U.S. person?
1: Yeah. For people like that, that you're describing, it sounds like those kinds of facts and circumstances fall into an area where the person has a closer connection to their home country. They file their taxes there their kids are enrolled in school there, their family's there, their bank account, they vote. And they, they were here 190 days, but really they, they don't have any sort of tax nexus or, or life nexus to the United States. They would file a form called 8840, which is a closer connection exception statement for aliens. And basically what they would say is on that form, what are the facts and circumstances that show I am, it's not fair to charge me for U.S. taxes. I am not a U.S. person. I was here over the time period. I genuinely couldn't leave. I kind of fall outside that, uh, that 60 day exemption period on the 8843. And I, I'd have a closer, much closer connection to another jurisdiction. They would file that 8840 in order to show the IRS that they genuinely, it's not fair. Right. Thing, by the way, is if they come from a jurisdiction that has a tax treaty with the United States, sometimes tax treaties have tie breaker rules. I'm going to try to say that tax treaty, tie breaker rules. Mm-hmm. And the tax treaty will define if we're right on the edge or, the, or someone went slightly over their 183 days, what are the facts and circumstances that would put them as not being a U.S. person?
0: Yeah, that's one of the first things when we have international clients, one of the first things we do is we say, let's look at the tax treaty, because there's a lot of times where a lot of these complications that you worry about are resolved inside those treaties. Yeah, they are a good resource for those countries that do have them. When you were talking about the form for the closer connection, I assume that you have to show documentation. Is it sort of the same kind of Argument that you know I'm not really a Pennsylvania resident, I'm a Florida resident. Is it the same kind of things like you'd show here's my driver's license, here's my voter registration card, or do you just fill out a form
1: and then see if the IRS picks you? The concepts are the same. You want to make sure that if questioned, you do have additional information. You do fill out the uh, the entire form, you sign it under penalties of perjury, of course, and the instructions, by the way, to that form are very helpful in, in telling you what sorts of information you should be able to provide if questioned.
0: Again, if I'm listening now and I'm there's a lot of things going through my head, one of the things that I often stress is, you know, not every tax professional is good for every scenario, right? Because some of us we know more about SALT, some people know more about international, some people know, you know, they're F-bar focused. So if I'm worried because I'm listening and I'm thinking maybe I've overstayed my welcome, you know, I've always gone to H and R or a, a different, maybe a more ten forty centric type filing place. How do I find someone that is knowledgeable about and can help with F bars? I mean, obviously, someone like yourself is is where they need to go. But how do people find people like you,
1: just generally? I know that one of the first places most people go to is the internet. They do their research and they look for reputable firms, firms that have experience in the area, firms that advertise that they have experience in the area. The big accounting firms undoubtedly have very qualified people. The larger international law firms undoubtedly usually have someone, but going to the website and uh, seeing what they advertise is usually a good start. The other good thing is knowing the types of questions to ask. I can give you one scenario that I have very personal experience with. I had a client that came to me and said, my wife is a green card holder, but I am not. What obligations does she have for reporting? Mm-hmm. They had gone to one of the larger accounting firms and the accounting firm said, what do you do for a living, Mrs. Jones? And Mrs. Jones said, I'm, I'm a housewife. I don't have any income. And they said, oh, then you don't have any filing requirements as a US person with, with no income. They came to me uh, several years later when the husband was wanting to become a US person. And we realized that she had interest income on joint bank accounts. We had to go back and file at the time, a, a streamline, a procedure that told the IRS it was inadvertent. They had tried to get you know good tax advice. So really knowing the right questions to ask help as well. Great. And one of the things that we often would tell
0: our clients and people who are looking for information that maybe came to us from other places, is that especially if you are here with other folks like you, so maybe it's an immigrant population, it is a travel group, it is workplace colleagues, folks who might be in your similar circumstances, you know, you're going to ask folks where the best doctor is for your kids and, and where you get your hair cut, why not ask them where you go for your tax advice? Because sometimes those communities are really good. And then hopefully those practitioners are asking the kinds of questions that you said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are several non-U.S. jurisdictions that have a different approach to tax filing than we do. So sometimes those communities um, have a different approach when they're here in the U.S. One of them, which we've encountered a few times now, is the requirements for student visas. And sometimes certain communities have very lax approaches to that. We're careful um, with regard to Uh, word of mouth referrals too sometimes.
0: And I know you have a little bit and we're not actually here to talk about immigration today, but since you have a little bit of experience on this, when people are thinking about visas and, you know, before they come into the U.S., kind of, you know, knowing what's all happened over the past few years, are there any thoughts or, or questions that you would share with people in terms of when they're looking at the best kind of visa? Because I would think that, you know, when we we talk about student visas and there's work visas is the tax consequences that flow from that. I think sometimes are the very last thing that people think about, right? They think I'm going over to be a student. I'm going over for my work. Are there any, is there any, and there may not be, any wiggle room um, for what kind of visa you should look for if you're concerned about taxation or like traps that you might fall in. So you're thinking, you know what, we should think about other kinds of, and I guess I'm not asking this question very well, but what I'm I'm thinking about is when, you know, if you're here as a tourist, let's say on a tourist visa and you get stuck, I think those are the kinds of folks who might not have contemplated the tax consequences of being stuck. If you knew you were going to be here as a student, you might have done some, some pre-tax planning. Are there any kind of questions that you would ask before you went to get visa that are specific to tax that matter, or does it not matter until you get here?
1: Yeah, that's a great area, and it's a big one, and there's a lot. So let me just touch on a couple of things. For the student visa, interestingly enough, there are very specific requirements that have to be complied with once you get it. You could lose your tax-exempt status as a as a student. You have to file that Form 8843 every year. You have to make sure that you're going to school. So okay. people that are coming here on that kind of a visa they have to be aware that there are some conditions and then know that there's a limit. After five years of being on that visa, there's going to be a change. We're not going to be able to exempt those days uh, after the five years. There's so many touch points in this particular topic. One of the things that's also very interesting is when we're doing some pre-immigration tax planning, we have to realize that certain things would have you treated as a non-U.S. person or the opportunity to do some planning as a non-U.S. person, the window begins to close once you've made application to change your status to become a permanent resident. There are some visas that you can come in on that people don't realize that 183-day substantial presence test runs concurrent along with those visas. So you could have an investor visa, and if it's your intention to not be a U.S. taxpayer, to not be a U.S. tax resident, you have your investor visa, you can come and go as you please. But those many clients still continue to count the days to make sure they stay under that 183 day timeframe.
0: Are there any other exceptions other than medical for those 183 days? Or is that a hard and fast
1: rule? The areas are teacher and trainee, student visa, professional athletes and people with a medical condition or medical problem. Uh, those are the days that we can exempt. And now with COVID, we can exempt that 60-day time period between February 1st and April 1st.
0: If you don't file that form, the rebuttal form, along with your return, is that something that you can fix after the fact? Or if you fail to file it contemporaneously, you're done. You, you know, you don't file it in 2020 because you didn't know you should have. And now you, you have to kind of do it
1: after the fact. Is that, is that allowable? It can be filed late. Uh, but again the amount of tax and the willfulness or non or non willfulness of your failure to file will be taken into consideration
0: it's so fascinating to me this whole area because it's again we tend to think of business people as being really savvy but just because you're here on work doesn't mean you're a business person right it, you could be you could be here because you're just really good at your job in public relations or or HR, or some, some other thing where it doesn't require you to work with taxes and numbers all the time. And we kind of assume that folks are going to know what it is they have to do and when it is they have to do
1: it. It seems that people's sophistication level really only extends to their awareness that they might need to ask for some additional guidance. But it's rare that even attorneys that work in domestic tax, even though what the international tax obligations are it, it is a very niche area, um, somewhat esoteric, and the rules are in some ways a little bit draconian so even even seasoned professionals, I think it's hard for them sometimes to be aware so
0: in terms of wrapping up, if you were if someone's listening to this program right now and they're not sure if they have a reporting requirement, what kinds of questions should they ask their practitioner when they get there, assuming that the practitioner doesn't ask maybe, and I'm, I'm using air quotes to say the right questions, but you know, if, if I'm going in to do my return and I'm not sure what my requirements are, but I don't want to get in trouble. Um, do you have any
1: questions that you would suggest that the taxpayer ask? Yeah, for sure. Make sure that they ask about what might be a requirement for a foreign bank account. Many times we see that taxpayers don't really want to know. They'll ask certain questions, but not all of them, because mm-hmm. no one really wants to have to file anything with the IRS. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it really, the onus does sometimes lie more with the practitioner, with the accountant or the attorney to ask the right questions. But for the client that is being proactive, uh, one of the most important things would be divulging that there are foreign bank accounts. How much, mm-hmm. how much is in those bank accounts? Um, being able to have a, a more frank discussion about that. Things like interest income is very important. Realization of capital gains in U.S. bank accounts while the person is considered a U.S. person will have a big difference. I don't think a lot of people are aware that there could be a tax filing obligation or a tax payment obligation or capital gains taxes while you're physically, while you're considered a U.S. accidental resident. Those are the ones that immediately come to mind. Days present. What should I be filing, um, and what can I do to exempt my days? Awesome. Well, thank
0: you so much. I think this is really helpful. I think a lot of folks don't understand what it means to be, you know, physically present in the U.S. I think we like to think of things in neat calendar years, um, and it's, it's difficult to understand these these formulas. And then also the the penalties for noncompliance. So, thank you so much for sharing that with the audience today. If folks wanted to find you or your firm and you wanted to be found either on social media or on the internet, where would you send them?
1: I would send them to www.saul.com. Our firm has a tremendous tax team, me being one of many people that work here. I love to talk about this area. So I hope people will reach out. This is a, a wonderful topic for me. Look for me on Saul.com. Again, my last name is spelled N O B I L E, or they can find me on LinkedIn at Diane.Nobile. I'm on LinkedIn as well, or you can just email me, Diane.Nobile at Saul.com.
0: Awesome. And I'll be sure to put all of these links in the show notes so that people can just click through. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.